Welcome to the Theology Podcast. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm working on four books simultaneously, one of which is a commentary on the book of Acts. But that's enough about me. Let's kick it over to you, Glenn, from Indiana. I'm Glenn Sunshine, retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, working on a few books. All right. And Tom, this is your show, so why don't you introduce yourself and just we can just jump right in. All right. I'm Tom Price. I teach theology and Christian ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and a few other places, and I also am writing some things, so... More about that in due time. <laughs> I love keeping the audience <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> it's, it's like that, but just, just holding that treat out there until finally. <laughs> the carrot on the stick, the carrot on the stick. <laughs> um, so, sorry about that, everyone. Um, so the, today's topic um, is, well, I'll, I'll just give a title that comes from a title of the article that I'm going to be riffing off of. It's called A Theory of Everything. Um, Christology as a hope for evangelical metaphysical revival. Wow, that's a chunk. Um, so let me let me kind of back up a little bit, and I'll work my way into that title. Then we'll work our way into some of the themes. Um, this is written by a Reese Laverty, who I'm not familiar with, but I am familiar with the journal that the article's published in, uh, Ad Fontes. Um, some of you may know of the Davenant Institute, correct? This is this is the uh, journal connected to that. I think that we've had a time or two where we've uh, we've engaged, uh, promoted some of their their material and their institute. Um, one of the things that the institute does is it, it kind of carries uh, out as one of its missions um, is sort of Protestant retrieval or Protestant resourcement, if you want to use that language, or what they say, um, a journal of Protestant letters. Um, they kind of are very indebted to the works of like uh, Richard Muller um, and the Protestant scholastics, and connecting Protestant uh, theology to its roots in classical Christianity from, from the time of the apostles all the way through. They don't see uh, it, the rupture of the Reformation as starting something wholly new, so much as aiming to reform riches that the church has been given. And so they are mining these riches. I see a lot of the work that I do in, 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 in step with, with this line. Um, and they, their journal and their uh, writers um, tend to be a lot of young, growing scholars, and they are very, very interesting and uh, in touching on the whole of reality, everything um, from a distinct reformed yet uh, Catholic in the in the universal sense uh, um, vision of things. So this article is in this journal in particular, summer 2022. It looks as though it's the it's the actual um, papers that were read at a symposium, which I, I had not heard of before I got the journal. Um, that looked at the recent work um, entitled um, The Rise of Christian Theology and the End of Ancient Metaphysics by Johannes Zachhuber. 
I do have that book, and I've read probably the first three chapters prior to even seeing these articles. So I'm familiar enough with with what he's up to to be able to kind of um, follow along with some of these articles. So what was he up to? Um, That's a good question, and we'll kind of explore that. But let me back up a little bit to what this article is trying to do. What it's trying to do is address something that I think the evangelical world has started to see is uh, a kind of missing element that is causing a lot of frustration in its ranks. It has a strong, rich history of being able to engage a predominantly Christian-influenced Western society with a lot of shared assumptions that basically Christianity had left that society even as that society left it. But as things continued to go on, um, less and less of that set of Christian assumptions held by the general culture can be considered something that you would see as shared. And so what one begins to see now is almost interpretations of life and reality that are so off-centered, it's sending shell shock into people who have some familiarity of classic Christianity or just culture that was influenced still by some semblance of Christianity. Um, And so we're seeing this, of course, with the redefinitions of just about everything, right? And and throwing people into a lot of confusion as to how do you even address a world in which you don't have any shared sets of beliefs or assumptions. And so one of the things he's trying to address here is that one of the things that probably didn't help the evangelical world, much less Christianity, is that it developed an allergy to something that probably was one of its greatest um, assets. And because of that, it basically found itself weakened by keeping that allergy and not treating it. And so one of the things he starts out with, he goes, starting in the early 20th century, many Protestant theologians developed an allergy to metaphysics. That is the study of being as being. Now, what in the world is that and why is that even significant? The fact that we have to ask that question shows that we're part of that tradition that has an allergy to metaphysics. Um, (laughs) That people don't know what how to talk about being or human being or the being of God anymore. We tend to talk more of history and historical action. Of course, you know, those are important. But we don't talk much about natures, um, what things are, and what is consistent with enacting what those things are. What does it mean to be a human? And what actions are consistent with what being a human is? what actions are not consistent with being what a human is. That would be a metaphysical way of looking at the human being. We're not used to doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the things that I'm doing right now in the way of research on totalitarianism is an outgrowth of this, or sort of an effect or a symptom of this allergy. So, for example, we're talking about nature's, you know, one of the natures that concerns us very directly is human nature. <laughs> but human nature is something that most intellectuals today deny even exist. Uh, so what that means is that 
people are constructed socially from the bottom up, that there is no essential core to a human being that makes a person human, which means that whoever possesses power can create a new kind of human. And that's what totalitarians aspire to do. This is one of the reasons why when I bring up the subject of totalitarianism and and I tell people, it is a new thing. It came on the scene in the modern uh, world that in it, we don't have anything like it in the past. They look at me quizzically and say, that's impossible. There's nothing new under the sun. Well, yes, there is. We have airplanes. They're new. We've never had airplanes. We, there are things that came out of modernity that really are innovations and are new and challenge us. And some of those are tremendously destructive and deny metaphysical reality and totalitarianism is an, is an example uh, of that. So unless we get back to nature's, we are going to have the, the boot of the state smashing our face for eternity like we see at the end of 1984. And that, that's exactly you know, where I, I, I want to direct things back to that question. Glenn, you were going to say something? Yeah, I, I think I, I would take this, of course, in a different direction. I want to look at uh, why evangelicals have ended up in this situation. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to a number of historical things yeah. uh, that happened. One of the characteristics of evangelicalism that is something of an innovation, although most people don't realize it, is conversionism. Yeah. They really pick that up out of the Puritans. But the degree of emphasis on conversionism within the evangelical movement is something that is almost unknown in church history prior to, say, the 18th century, a little bit earlier with some of the Puritans. And if you view the world through the lens of conversionism, then all of these philosophical questions become window dressing. They're not that important. What's important is that you get the person saved. Yeah, maybe, and this is another thing evangelicals were known for with social activism. Maybe you want to see that um, the, the individual salvation enacted on a societal level, where we get the society to repent of the evils that it is doing. Um, so you get the abolition of the slave trade, you get the temperance movement, you get a whole bunch of things of that sort coming out of this. But it's all fundamentally centered around this idea of conversion and reform. Yeah. And if that is what your focus is, metaphysical speculation and things like that aren't that significant. Then when you add on top of that the early 20th century and the impact of things like the Scopes Monkey Trial and things of that sort, which drove the conservative Christians out of the academy and out of um, you know culture in general, and had them withdrawn to their own enclaves, they were not interested in metaphysics at that point anyway, and they just simply stepped out of any discussion of philosophy or anything of the sort. Yeah, yeah, the, these, uh, it's one of the things I was going to uh, add to that very first point is, and, and I, get, I get what he's saying when he's talking about starting in the early 20th century, many Protestant theologians developed an allergy to metaphysics. Uh, my, my first thought was it goes away it goes back a lot a lot longer than that uh, you could go back to many protestants during the reformation had an allergy to some types of metaphysics and rightly so i i i think we've talked about what was going on then in the kind of reactions but they were not opposed to metaphysics per se they were opposed to something that was really disturbing and distorting the faith 
because it wasn't consistent with it. But I, I don't want to go down to that. But one of the things that we talked about really that came out of um, a lot of those debates and challenges that the Reformation tried to wrestle with, sometimes it did it well, sometimes it didn't, um, is a shift that started to help, you know, to happen in Western culture. And that was, you know, this one turn to viewing the human individual, um, their particular being, um, as basically an adequate measure of all being. In other words, my being, um, my individual being by itself is self-standing and basically is the measure of all being. So God, if there is a God, is like me, just maybe bigger than me and more powerful than me. There is this kind of way in which I, as an individual, have being and can be kind of the metaphysical measure of all of that. Um, then you have a shift in the conception of God and the human being in which really pure will becomes fundamental to human nature. So no longer is it that I am an individual, distinct, I'm not connected to any higher um, kind of co uh, being or kind like humanity. Um, humanity is just a name for basically a bunch of individual, distinct, particular beings like me. Um, but not anything higher than that, well, then pure will becomes fundamental as well. And so my choice and the things that I bring into reality or, or enact um, become somewhat of the measure of myself and my identity and an expression of my wants, right? And then move this in the Kantian direction, where, um, where we can no longer move in any sense of the word from the visible to the invisible because they're already construed for Kant along the same lines and everything, therefore, that has being must be sensible if we're going to talk about it sensibly. So basically, our minds now become the place, our individual minds um, become the place in which we're forming the way in which the world outside of us and its being is being understood. And we're constructing reality. So we are the measure of all things. We aren't connected to any larger order in any strong sense. Our will is definitive of our nature. And then our subjectivity, of course, is what is central to that enactment of this will. So you're seeing a, a very strong kind of understanding um, of the human being that is going to have huge ramifications later. Um, and sadly, a lot of the theology of the 17th, 18th, 19th century started to basically just adopt this picture and just, you know, still use some of the, the language and theology texts, but they're in the process uh, importing this new understanding of the human and um, as sheer will, uh, grounded in the human subject, um, and this very disconnected relationship between God and nature that is a part of that. Um, and so, long story short, metaphysics becomes a place of huge questionability because it becomes a place of pure speculation by this point. It's nothing more than the projected constructs of individual human beings in their um, desires or their way of their interpretation of things. Yeah, which means that there's no, in the minds of modern people who think in this way, there's no reality out there to really check 
our outlooks or our convictions or the things we, we do with reality. So to dig into Kant a little bit more, this is a, a, a difficult thing for many people to grasp because it's so counterintuitive. But we all kind of in a common sense way believe that our senses tell us real things about the world outside our heads. But the entire empiricist tradition called all of that into question, which is one of the things that makes empiricism difficult for you know, you know, beginning students of modern philosophy to grasp. The idea is that you know, knowledge comes from the senses, but uh, what the senses are informing us of is not the beings uh, in themselves outside our heads. The sense data is just simply entering into our minds, but doesn't actually reflect the things. They're just the sensations that we receive through our eyes or nose or tongue or what have you, which means that there's something about us that structures the model that we have of reality. So for Kant, this was an objective yet internal structure. We all share it. We all have the same internal structure. But that's been called into question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And most modern philosophy today rejects that idea. Consequently, everything is socially constructed, which means that whoever has the power to impose the categories of interpretation mm-hmm. rules the world, which yeah. is why we have such, con- you know, so, str- you know, big debates right now about identity and language and all that kind yeah. of stuff, because language is, uh, is, uh, you know, understood to be the source of the internal structure that we have. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually have to pull that a, a step further back. Uh, that basic idea that there are no internal structures goes yeah. back to John Locke. Yeah. Uh, Locke's psychology, published in the 18th century, very, very influential, said that when children were born, they were tabula rasa, that is to say blank slates. They accumulate experiences, and through accumulating these experiences, they begin to develop structures in their mind to categorize them. Um, now, this has got a number of implications. It, it leads directly to a number of approaches to education, for example. Uh, but along with that, it fundamentally rejects the idea of original sin because there is no inbred tendency toward anything. Um, And then along with that, by the way, uh, we also know that it isn't true that babies are pre-programmed with certain things that they recognize. Um, So at least on some level, we know that that isn't the case. But nonetheless, we've adopted a philosophy that says that, well, you know, aside from maybe faces and things like that, everything else that a child learns is socially constructed. Yeah. And so, so what you have here is a, a fundamental alteration um, away from a Christian understanding to something that would be, a, a, I would argue, a heretical Christian understanding to something that demonstrates its, its heresy later on. Or another way of putting it, you have a Christian metaphysic, then you have a, a metaphysic that is inconsistent with core Christian truths that starts to disrupt the harmony of teachings between God, creation, nature, and the rest, even if they weren't expressed perfectly ever. Um, And then you have it break loose and finally starts to become Lord, if you will, over the Christian content, eventually throwing it out. 
one of the things that grows out of this. Um, when you have, when you no longer have, you know, universals like human nature, but only individual humans, they're the only things that exist. They're the only things that have being. Then what you're saying is that they're only individual things exist in reality. There are, are, are no non-material universal things. There are no spiritual things um, in any sense that is, is related in a strong way to the material. And so because of that, you have the groundwork for naturalism, the sense that nature is self-standing, um, self-explanatory, and basically the, re, you know, the, the reality that all things are reducible to. You can also have as a rebellion against that something called just pure spirit, but that's, that's, a, that's not so dominant until till later. Yeah, one of the things that occurred to me right there, Tom, is that this goes a long way toward explaining the absolute lack of ecclesiology uh, among evangelicals. Because it's me and God, it's, it's all individual and things like that. There is no us. There the is no we are collectively yeah. part of the body of Christ. The political consequence of the naturalizing of, of basically public space was the eradication of the church's influence because it had nothing to basically impact because there was nothing really spiritual. Everything that, that exists is not spiritual. It's purely material. So why does the church have any say in it anyway? This was part of the arguments of the Enlightenment, right? So the church then became, um, had a place, but that was over the privatized, individualized, uh, separated realm of, of, you know, spirituality. And it's a consumeristic approach that says that you can pick the church you want. Yeah. Well, it, Related to these things is an earlier understanding, or maybe I should put it this way, contrasting with these things is an earlier understanding of knowledge as participation yeah. in which we participate in the body of Christ. Christ participates in our humanity. He's, he's human. So people might wonder, well, this is pretty esoteric stuff. How does this really relate to the practical implications of my salvation? Well, it's huge. <laughs> it's huge. If there, if there is no human nature, that means that Christ doesn't have a common place to stand with us. In other words, he doesn't share our nature. He's got his own individual his, experience. His, his, his death on the cross was for him only. I that mean, that, that, would be, that would be one of the byproducts of, of a certain kind of, you know, you know atomistic um, individualism. And frankly, it's optimistic with a T, not a D. That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But frankly, this is just a supposition, but it's based on 40 years of ministry experience. My conviction is probably 95% of the pastors in America don't understand anything we're talking about. Yeah, and I think that's that, that's what he he's getting to in the article is we have a serious allergy. I would say it's well, allergy is probably a light term, and may you know I'm I have a kind of article I'm putting together that's kind of a, a building off this, but taking it into some some different areas. But I think allergy is too weak. Um, I, but let me go a different direction. In in the theological world, we had this allergy spelled out with spelt out with theological liberalism and neo orthodoxy in many play in, in many ways. 
Um, the famous, we've talked about before, Adolf von Harnack in particular, um, is very famous for his, his line that um, basically the church started out okay and immediately, as soon as it stepped on Hellenic soil, was polluted by Greek static philosophical concepts that suffocated and brought Greek metaphysics into the pure uh, biblical religion of the early church and therefore distorted it. And so the Reformation, if it's being true to itself, is a restoration almost of a pure Hebraic, you know, Hebraic, although he didn't like the the Jews that much, but a, a uh, Anyway, a pure. <laughs> so he doesn't like Greeks and he doesn't like Jews. Yeah. Is there anyone in the early church that he could actually say, mm-hmm. think he had it right? He said, pretty much yeah. exhausts the, the options. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> for some reason, I see him projecting a, 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 a Teuton. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave The Aryan Church Fathers. <laughs> <laughs> they were all and, blonde and blue-eyed. <laughs> if you're going that way, you got to go to the Aryans. I'm sorry, yeah. that's where you have to head. But, yeah. So, 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 but but anyway, he, so apparently he didn't like anyone other than than the uh, German the German gentleman. Maybe that's how he would have put it. Um, well, he is an aristocrat, Von yeah, Harnack. He, he was, yeah. <laughs> and and you know, he's uh, look. Harnack is a great. I I enjoy reading Harnack. He's a he's a he's a very good writer. It's just that I'm in pains to listen to what he's saying sometimes. But yeah, so basically, you could reduce pure Christianity to a universal. He's, it's funny how he gets to a universal, which is definitely you know, language that comes out, the universal fatherhood of God in the universal, uh, so he goes, interestingly, he doesn't go for for nominalism or individualism, he goes for some kind of universal, um, and... But he'd also have to be an Aryan, wouldn't he? Yeah, I I don't, like I said, I, he, because he came, you know, he was a little bit, he was that generation before, um, I don't remember what, I'm trying to think of what, he was that generation before. I mean, I know it was uh, the, he did he did sign on to the first uh, German war, didn't he? Yeah, under Vil, the, the Wilhelm, uh, for World War I, he signed on to it. And he, I, I think it was him, and he had some back and forth with Bart, where Bart was basically challenging him on it. And his point was, well, you don't understand German experience, you're Swiss. So, German Christian experience is distinct from Swiss Christian experience. So you can morally justify through your experience as a German Christian going to war. It, it's a funny how that universalism breaks down very quickly once it becomes uh, down to one's cultural identity. But that's, but that's what goes on when you get a bad metaphysic replacing, you know, trying to replace what he saw as a bad metaphysic. Um, you know, you end up down this path. But one of the things that, uh, well, von Harnack basically was arguing that all the speculation and all the creeds were just filled with philosophical terms that hadn't been hammered in light of any truth, but basically forced truth into their Procrustean bed and basically perverted the gospel. Um, and as a historian, he should have known better, but I think that's where his politics was driving his history, but that's just my opinion. But uh, but you see you see this uh, a lot in the biblicist circles today that um, it, you know 
they'll affirm the Trinity, but they'll they'll try to find a place where that word triune was in the Bible itself rather than came out of Tertullian. You know, um, you know, summing up the biblical material with a very good word to sum it up, right? Um, and so what ends up happening with that kind of von von Harnack and other figures who promoted this is Protestant liberalism took on the kind of social gospel dimensions um, that it basically became about fatherhood of God, brotherhood of humanity, do social good works. And the neo-Orthodox basically had an allergy to any kind of natural revelation or natural theology that you could get to through philosophy. They interpreted the ancient Greek Hellenic influence as philosophy in contrast to biblical um, reflection being theology. So they made a radical division between theology and philosophy, which again, just showed that they were very far apart from that ancient world. Glenn? Yeah, I, I was just, you know, the, the, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, um, where you see this showing up in almost every hymnal is um, God our father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Concerning philosophy as it's spoken of in Scripture, I've got a, a thesis that I want to explore someday. I just haven't done it. But my thesis is that when Paul is referring to philosophy in a derogatory way, he's actually speaking of the sophists. Yeah. yeah. He's, not, he's not speaking about what m many people assume he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right, and I think so, there has been some very good work that has debunked that whole um, narrative, uh, mythological narrative that Van Harnack and others have promoted. Um, and one of the, I think, one of the things that um, Zockhuber's work is doing is likewise showing that that is such a flawed view of what's going on in the time period of the early church that it's disingenuous to, to, to play into it. But one of the things that happened in theology itself, theology proper, the doctrine of God, is something that we're still recovering from, some of that allergy. It did two things. On the one hand, it tried to develop a, a biblical theology on its, on its own without using the help of any kind of category outside the Bible which again has run the risk of starting to see new forms of subordinationism creep in and all the ancient heresies in one way or the other. Um, and you also see the fact that you can't find scripture and verse text to apply to every new ethical and moral challenge um, because scripture wasn't meant to address every single thing. It was supposed to give you a foundation from which to learn how to address those things. And you right. could use your, your mental faculty as part of that application. And then the other side is what they what started to happen with figures like, um, well, in some ways, Karl Barth, though he was a little bit, he wasn't so extreme, but maybe Robert Jensen and other figures like that, they tried to, real, they realized you have to have a metaphysic. So what they tried to do is develop something called a Trinitarian metaphysic or a incarnational metaphysic. Um, and that's something I want to get to in, in this article in, in a little bit, because I, I, I want to make sure that he's he, he's kind of aware of some some temptations that can develop when we go the direction he wants to go. But what does that mean? Well, in incarnational metaphysic, the way these theologians were using it um, is really indebted in some ways to to the kind of metaphysical revisioning of things that Hegel brought us, where basically um, God is not 
being itself as the old classical Hellenic God, but God's being is in becoming. So God is basically a relational God who through his loving relation with creation is interacting and and being impacted by and then also impacting and sharing in this mutual panentheistic feast of love, basically. Um, you have Moltmann as a, as a character of this, and he uses kind of a, 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 the Marxist Ernst Bloch theology of hope to bring it to a kind of social justice um, interpretation of liberation theology. But what you have going on here is them saying, basically, we can't use... Yeah, go ahead. Well, just before you jump to the next uh, area of analysis or application, one place that some of our listeners might see what you're talking about uh, is in the broader evangelical world, the rise of open theism. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the, the language of open theism is, is entirely relational in character. Yeah. You're not dealing with, with essences at all. And you actually are changing God through yeah. the, so this is process theology. So, you know, my old, uh, friend, Tom Ord, who teaches at, yeah. you know, Northwest <laughs> Nazarene university, he's, one of the more, I guess, prominent yeah. uh, advocates of this outlook. And it's spreading through the the Wesleyan holiness world. It's become a real problem there. Yeah. So yeah. This, this is something that some of our listeners may have encountered in some way. So this is not just the podcast guys getting into esoterica here. We're, we're talking about stuff that has, has, a, has had and is having a real ongoing impact on even daily church life uh, in yeah. perhaps your megachurch setting. And interestingly, and this is kind of, I don't want to go too far down this trail, but it is it is related to that, is, is what it tends to be is a reaction to what I would argue is a perverted interpretation of the classical or reformed view. Um, and, they, and they are promoted out there. I hear a lot of Reformed people speak in, in absolutely voluntaristic conceptions of God as if that, that's, that's all it is, is the imposition of a sheer will arbitrarily and disconnectedly to anything other than just, you know, God felt like it. Um, and so what ends up happening is that in the, in the Arminian or the semi-Pelagian mind is, oh, well, that means there is no real creature or real, you know, kind of interaction or relation um, going on. So they're, they're super attracted to relational views of God and panentheistic views because it dignifies in their mind the creature, which they think it's absorbed into the arbitrary uh, monocausality of certain kinds of reformed and classical, you know, views of God. I mean, that's, that's I think, the temptation for them. And sadly, because both both of those polarities, similar to um, you know to to the strict and rigid um, law versus you know the chaotic, those kind of polarities become the, the place where all these debates happen. And there are alternatives, but that's one of the things I want to get to. Um, but what has happened is one of the ones that was very popular was by um, an Orthodox theologian some years back. You probably remember him, um, John Zizioulos. Um, John Zizioulos wrote a famous book called um, Being as Communion, in which his argument was, if you go back into these debates and you study what is going on with the church, the church is doing something unique with the metaphysical tradition of philosophy. 
But the church, what the church is doing in his interpretation is taking the old static view of being and bringing that Trinitarian um, God's being is a being in communion and filling being with the personal, right? And so he's creating a Trinitarian ontology from his Trinitarian doctrine, and then he's going to implant it on all of reality, um, in a univocal way, right? But but it, so now all of reality that has being is constituted by relationality, relationality. God, so everything is relational. And I've heard this stuff in evangelical churches, especially with the therapeutic, is very pronounced. Um, and I get why people move this way. But what what happens when they do this kind of stuff um, is, first of all there's a better way. Um, but secondly, it, it get, gets to the point of you, you end up with a creator creature relationship that basically means everything that happens down on the creaturely gets fed right back up into its relation with the creator and the creator becomes constituted by its relationship to everything else. Um, and so what you have is a creator dependent on the creation, um, no matter how much they try to talk their way out of it. It's a codependent relationship. <laughs> it, 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 it is, and so and so and, and what, how, what a risky, you know, what a risk. I mean, you talk about being anxious in the world, right? A, a god that depends on the creatures, you know, comporting certain kinds of ways in order to be god. Um, but anyway, that, that so there has been metaphysical problems in the theological world. That um, that a lot of retrieval theologians have said, wait a minute, we don't need to get stuck in this blurring the difference between creator and creature and properly uh, talking about the, these things in a way that speaks of the absolute um, the absolute undetermined nature of the creator and yet the real relation of the creature to the creator for all that it is. And there's a whole way to do it. And that provides the Christian distinction that allows for us to talk about a true human nature and what is what it entails. But anyway, back to this article real quick. So one of the things that um, uh, Zuckhuber is trying to do is, is look at the early church and, and see what is going on when it starts to use language that isn't just the language in the Bible. Is it actually taking, you know, a philosophy and um, forcing, you know, biblical content to do things that it wasn't meant to do, or is it the other way around, or some combination of both? And one of the things that he discovers, and he's not the first, is that our notion of philosophy and theology that we use today, and which really owes itself, Glenn could probably talk about this, all the way back to the medieval distinctions and divisions of departments, is not what they understood philosophy and theology to be. Um, he notes that almost every one of what we would call the early church, the patristic theologians, considered what they were doing called, they called it philosophy. They didn't call it theology. Theology actually was a pagan term about the study of the gods. And the times that theology was used as a term tended to be when you were just specifically talking about a Trinitarian theologian like St. Basil, the Trinitarian. That would be another way of saying St. Basil, the theologian. Um, so Christian philosophy uh, was basically, um, when, when Christians entered in and had their discussions about God, creatures, and creation, 
Um, most of the people around, the pagans, thought of them as just another philosophical school because philosophy, actually they didn't think of them as a religious school because none of their practices were similar to Roman or, or uh, Greek cults. And so they, they saw them more as they had a founder, they had authoritative texts, and they would debate these texts and converse about them. They saw them as another school of, of, of philosophy. And so for, for theologians to actually engage philosophical material was what you would expect, because that's what all people did with the content they had to pull out its depths and riches and organize it and communicate it in an environment that is shaped by that. So he's so that's one of the things that he notes is going on. But then he notes is that there is alteration going on. Christians are are being accused by the pagans of taking the pagan stuff but doing something with it, right? It's the exact opposite of Harnack who's saying basically it's the other way around. Christians are altering the understanding of things. So in that sense Zizulos is right, but he's not it, you know, Zizulos has been shown to be wrong in terms of being being reinterpretation, interpreted relationally. Another story. So anyway, what what ends up happening with this work is he he looks all the way up to John of Damascus, and he basically shows that out of the Cappadocian fathers, which gave us a lot of our categories for explicating the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, um, Omoousion, um, Usia hypostasis, I mean, these terms, um, and we'll, we'll talk about what they mean in a minute. But what end, well, they gave us this vocabulary, but they gave it to us in a way that it had been engaged and gutted and refashioned to serve the biblical exegetical task of explicating the Trinity and the Incarnation. So, so what I think what we could say is, is, is the fathers had some data, some, yeah. some information that the their interlocutors did not possess. They were believers in the resurrection. They were believers that this demonstrated that Jesus is the son of God. That is the data that they have. And they're bringing that data to the conversation. And they're saying, there are things that you don't know that we do. And we're going to help you see those, how those realities influence your thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you really understand these things, your your understanding of being will be informed by this, uh, and so forth. That's right. There is there is there is something new that comes with the Christian revelation that, if you will, illuminates what is true in these these terms and categories, and allows them to be serviceable to the gospel and truth. And it shows where they're in error and where they need to purge that stuff off of that old understanding. This is what we do. We convert. This is where conversion actually has a positive term, weaned off of its idols and purified for the service, sanctified, um, bring all things into conformity to Christ. So, but one of the things that's happening, remember, is the gospel is being interpreted in churches and there are definitions of Christ starting to develop, which are using metaphysical terms to talk about Christ, but they're not painting the full picture. And what is at stake is salvation. If you don't have Christ as fully God and fully humanity, as Athanasius will tell us, then something um, in our salvation is going to be impacted. Either we are not going to actually be saved because Christ never comes and assumes our humanity and redeems it, or we're never going to be brought up into to eternal life, which belongs to God 
alone. So, so what happens when a, you know a heresy develops is it's using a metaphysical picture that doesn't serve the biblical content in its fullness. And so these people still, these heretics still used biblical language and biblical texts to prove their point. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He can't be, you know, um, Jesus says, you know, no one knows but the Father, so he can't be. And so what these theologians were saying is, wait a minute, that interpretation of the Bible, just throwing scripture out there is not going to deal with this enough. We actually need to show that there is a way of talking about the biblical truth that does justice to the full picture, but we're going to have to use some terms in order to show how we distinguish ourselves from them. And that's what that's why these debates got technical and borrowed terms from philosophy. They were in the service of of this truth, and they impacted those terms in their service of the truth. And there were terms that had currency in the first century in these circles that are in Scripture, Lagos, most famously. So it's not as though um, the apostles were utterly... allergic to use the term that we were talking yeah. about earlier uh, yeah. to, to, to terminology that was in the environment that they found themselves. And I mean, think of just think about the Septuagint. It, it, it's, it's a, a translation of the Hebrew into Greek. So there are terms that are found in Greek philosophy and in the Septuagint. And then yeah. of course we have the new Testament as well. And I think about, you know, participation itself, you know, are, you know, is not, you know, you know, the bread of Christ, are we not participating? You know, this is language that would have brought ways of thinking to mind to Greek speakers who yeah. were familiar with the schools of philosophy that surrounded them. So this, it's not as though, uh, you know, the apostles were, um, just rubes and had no knowledge of the environment that they found themselves in. Well, what, what I find most baffling about Harnack and his many contemporary followers, even if they don't realize that's what they're doing, what did you expect the church to do? How does the church communicate its message to the Greek world if they don't use Greek categories, if they don't use Greek ways of thinking? How do you expect them to do this? Yeah. You've got to start somewhere. You know, um, you, you've got to you've got to have a point of contact with them. So the question is, what is the point of contact? Also, the question is, what is true? Because everything that's true belongs to God, belongs to Jesus. He is yeah. the truth. So as they looked at the Greek philosophical world, they were asking themselves the question, what's true? Yeah. What in this world is true that we can use as the doorway to bring the gospel to the people around us? This is exactly what missionaries today do. Yeah, and and part of it is that it in the gospel is a at what I would argue, and I'm working on writing about this is is a certain view of creation, of understanding of creation, that the visible clearly demonstrates the invisible, and even though we suppress it, it doesn't mean that it, in order for it not to do its work, we need Christ to, to, to do it. But when we have Christ, we begin to see 
all of those places at which that visibility manifests itself. And that becomes something to which we incorporate into the full vision, the lordship of Christ over it, dominion in the right sense, bringing it into submission and allowing its light to shine and show the gospel too. And so what they saw is all of these radiant, radiant features of truth that, that, you know, they even would say sometimes like Plato must have met Moses because how in the world did he come to this? They were blown away by the fact that some truths that were consonant with, with the truth were, were there and that they could use those things as, like you said, apologetic purposes, but also for unpacking um, that vision in a world where challenges from that kind of philosophical and metaphysical frame of mind uh, were being launched. And so, yeah, and, and it is a process. The church didn't have any experience doing this before. I mean, you did have the kind of Hellenic, you know, the, the translation of the Septuagint by Hellenic Jews and the like, but you didn't, they were really the, their first example um, that they have of it. So, so, but what you end up getting is, terms now that with the Cappadocians is according to, you know, um, uh, Zach Huber's book, that this becomes sort of a, a philosophical uh, Christian philosophy, if you will, that puts to death the, the kind of ancient metaphysics, as we were talking about, Christ puts to death the, the ancient gods, if you will, and now becomes pretty much the common assumption of theologians from here on, um, because it was hammered out in its doctrine of the Trinity, trying to talk about the way in which we have one Usia, substance, and three um, subsisting relations within it, hypostasis, Indi you know, not individual persons, but distinct all the way down persons within the one um, essence of God. And so this language then, um, as according to uh, Zakuber, becomes a little bit problematic when it gets applied to Christology. So they have to do, have to do some more rigorous philosophical metaphysical work to make it explain not simply the three persons in the one Godhead, but how you have one person and two distinct natures, divine and human. Yeah, I, I want to pause here just one moment to note, I like the way you put it, and I don't know that I can repeat it exactly, but the term hypostasis translates into Latin as persona, but it does not mean anything like what we mean when we use the word person. That's right. Um, it, it's a subsistence. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, when, when we pull ourselves out of our modern concept of what personhood is, yeah. it helps us make better sense out of what we're really confessing when we talk about the Trinity. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, well, persona, of course, was another way of talking about masks, and the church did not want to use a term like that. Um, and it didn't like modes of being. Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, there's a whole history why it chose the terms it did. But you're, you're, that's, a, that's a great point. But one of the things you notice is the church has to give very clear, solid definitions as best it can of the nature of deity and the nature of humanity when it's talking about Christ. And one of the things that he picks up in this article as he moves away from um, Zach Huber's work to look for some of its value for helping us with our metaphysical issues today, 
is he's saying what we have when we look at the human being, because he notes, Zakuber noted that the Cappadocians took these categories and started to apply it to all the doctrines because they found them very helpful in, in, in the nuances they wanted to unpack in that Hellenic context. And so one of the things he notes is that um, in the article is that um, he says modern man is all hypostasis and no usia. He's all the, pati- the particular individual, distinct, you know, person, but not connected to human nature as a, as a universal in which he is an individual enactment. And he says one of the things that Zakuber points out is that it very well may have gone back earlier to the patristics rather than to what a lot of people claim Augustine gave us, the kind of individual human being and their dignity and distinction rather than just, you know, one example of a universal category. But on the flip side, it didn't get it didn't turn to nominalism. It actually considered that gift of that distinction, but within the fact that it is also a shared humanity and ultimately with Christ. And so what he's trying to do is say is maybe that is a way of entering into that out that territory of allergy, since we still confess the two natures of Christ and we still as evangelicals will use this language as maybe a springboard from which to start thinking about human nature, its particular distinction, but also the fact that it participates in a kind, a created kind with a distinct nature shared with all human beings that has a telos and a purpose and that is given by God, ordered by God, ordained by God, and uh, that we're called to truthfully enact. Um, And so maybe this is a springboard to enter back into metaphysics from our Christological reflections and the gifts they gave us. Well, we've talked already a little bit about how significant this is for salvation. Yeah. Right. So if Christ does not share our nature, then he is not the mediator between God and man. Yeah. Furthermore, We've talked about it as well as uh, addressing the challenges of the present moment, particularly with all the transhumanist, transgender insanity, because yeah. they they don't the the trans these transhumanists and other modern thinkers don't acknowledge that there is a human nature. So, people at home listening to this show who wondered what is all this <laughs> sort of cerebral abstract talk mean for me? Well, I've just given you two examples. Yeah. Two things that you're probably very concerned about, your personal destiny in God, (laughs) salvation, (laughs) and why our world is going down the tubes. Yeah. These things are very relevant. I think another way to put it, um, and this is what, because I, I, I was thinking very, you know, yes, this is a very hard topic. It's hard to write about. It's hard to think of it because we're not used to it. But what if we come at it a different way? All right, let's say we're not every one of us in the church called to be metaphysicians and we're not going to be, right? But why don't we ask this question? This is a good one. Um, what is it in our current culture, both church and society, um, that we know about human beings based on our biblical understanding and the theology we've been informed by that is being eclipsed, left out of the picture, distorted, completely left out, um, suppressed, 
what are those things, um, whether it relates to the human body, to the psychosomatic unity of the human, the rational nature of the human being? I mean, what, what is it that's being left out and eclipsed? Um, because that's a starting place for where you start to look for what answers the Christian faith and its, its theologians have helped to give resources to us um, that we can begin to answer those questions in thicker and thicker ways that address the hard conversations that are out there. At least I would think. <laughs> now, I, I am still intrigued by the implications of this for the church, for ecclesiology specifically, um, because it is the fact that Jesus has a human nature as Chris pointed out, that allows him to be our redeemer, but it also is the thing that allows us to be united to him. And you can't read Paul very far without running into this as a major theme in his writings. We don't talk about it a lot as evangelicals. Uh, we're more interested in the conversion thing. But being united with Christ is really the goal of salvation. That's the point of it. Um, getting your sins forgiven is the doorway, but the heart of it really is our union with Christ. But if each of us is individually united with Christ, then in Christ we are also united with each other. That, yes. And, and this leads us to the church and the centrality of the church. And once again, the fact that evangelicals have typically are clueless on this is why they don't really have an ecclesiology. Well, and, I, I, I go over this every Sunday with my congregation when I read, you know, First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23, uh, mm -hmm. at, you know, providing the words of institution. And there, at the, at the end of the statement, Paul uh, warns his hearers that unless they can uh, discern the body, yeah. that they should not uh, eat and drink because they will eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, that particular statement is pretty strong stuff. It's addressing the reality of Christ's body as it is, you know, connected not strictly or only to the elements, but to but the to larger the, body, the, the, the that's, church. That's ancient. That's, that's where it points. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, that was the way that even, you know, really up into some distortions that happened at the same time, a lot of the distortions happened in church. That's the way the church understood the Eucharist. It wasn't the concentration was not the the elements. The concentration was from this body that are many, and in Christ the 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 reality of the sacrament, the body of Christ is discerned in the people, the church, the the form um, in which He is now present. Um, and yes, it has huge implications. And what you notice there, though, and here is. This is something that, you know, I'd have to tease out, you know, uh, I mean, he, he would have to, the writer of the article, uh, Laverty would have to tease out more, is when we're talking about Christ's humanity, of course, we are talking about, you know, um, one that assumed our human nature, but wasn't uh, befuddled by what we are befuddled by. So in one sense, you get the true the, the true humanity in Christ um, to which we are called to participate and therefore we become we become in union with him and will reach perfection and have a creaturely share in his sonship with the Father. Um, that's one angle. But then what does it say 
back towards the general creation. And this is, I think, an important point. And this is where I would say that the Christological debates were not severed from also the doctrines of creation. And one of the things that they had very strong with Christ's redeeming and saving work was also the way in which Christ, the eternal Logos, who is the light that lights everything, that there is a sort of metaphysical moment in creation where there is a correspondence. The Logos, who is the creator, has made a correspondence between reality, God, and our human nature so that we can rationally understand certain aspects because there is a real structure that the creator has imprinted into things that corresponds to his nature, attests to it, points to it, and which in the end allows the sacrament to actually be be a sacrament and, and the creation itself become that, if you will. Yeah, I want to go back uh, to my earlier point uh, concerning the body. And I'm looking here at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. This is interesting language that Paul uses here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the Greek as well. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. He immediately makes these connections, right? Uh, for we all partake of one bread. Now, the word that's translated into the English word participation is koinonia. Yeah. yeah. So now we know all of our evangelical friends are all about koinonia. They love to talk about fellowship and the importance, how, how, but, but they almost do it all strictly in terms of a kind of utilitarian instrumentalist way of, of, of building this institution that they have, this mega thing or whatever it happens to be. It's just, they, they have a very, functional approach. They don't see the metaphysical significance of the body of Christ. They think of it only in terms of, well, if you want to keep people in church, you got to get them connected to other people. (laughs) That's where it stops for a lot of them. And one of the things, you know, this is something that has affected, again, the the Protestant world largely. Um, We often talk about it as as sort of extrinsicism. Um, It's the way in which um, these things remain outside of us. Now, there is a truth to that. The truth part is these things are alien and outside in the sense that they have their ground in God and not in us. But they are not alien in the sense that they are we, we are not par- able to partake and participate in a creaturely way in them. This is the whole reason we can have being and uh, ha- participate in communion with the eternal inner life of God, because these things are not merely things that remain extrinsic in terms of our participation in them. Um, so and another way of putting it this way, I am the vine and you are the branches. You can't get more kind of participatory of that. If you remain in me, you know, you will flourish. Um, otherwise, you don't bear fruit. You'll be, you know, cut off. That's the only kind of extrinsicism um, you yeah. see see there. Uh, yeah, we should probably pull this in uh, and uh, land this baby. Uh, <laughs> so is there anything you want to leave us with here, Tom? Well, it was. Uh, I, I thought it was an interesting article. I know it's hard and heady, but I, I don't. I know I have a lot of people out there write me regularly who appreciate this kind of angle on things. They don't get to think about it much, and so this article I think was a good good reflection on those hard and difficult themes. Um, it is hard to to 
some, you know, we have an allergy to this stuff and it's not easy for, for a lot of us, especially in, in the evangelical world to, to kind of di- jump in. Um, but I think an easier way to look at it is just like Chris started. I mean, scripture is already making these distinctions. It's telling you reality is this way. The body is this way. This isn't something that is just a, a kind of uh, alternative metaphor for some naturalistic explanation of things, which is reducible just to you getting together for, for a few hours. But this is really a sharing in and a communion with the eternal God in that our natures are reborn, born anew. And they have something about that bearing that attests to our true humanity. And when we enact it properly, we're living out what the creation was intended to do and be and being a witness in light to that. Well, rich stuff. Anything you want to say, Glenn, as we wrap up? Um, I don't think I've got anything to add right now. (laughs) Okay. Well, we are glad. Take it off on a huge tangent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad that you have listened all the way to the end of a Theology Podcast episode. And we'd like to invite you, if you haven't already, consider uh, to consider becoming a supporter of the show. Uh, we have a Patreon account. Uh, we've got a number of people who give to us on a regular basis through that. Uh, we are part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And there are people who are members of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network who designate the Theology Podcast as the podcast that they want to support and then there are other ways that people give as well but uh, those of you who already do the do do this uh, we really appreciate it it helps out a lot and if you would like to support us and you haven't done so already uh, those are ways you can do it anyway thanks a lot once again and bye-bye bye-bye, bye-bye.